Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come and study. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be with us, that our minds will be enlightened, and may, you, uh, may your angels uh, join us here today as we worship you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in our quarterly health and healing, and the lesson title is The Environment. And I thought maybe we could start with questions like, to the best of our ability in our divine and sanctified imaginations, what do you think the environment was like before sin on earth? What was the earth's environment like before Adam and Eve sinned? Any thoughts? Wasn't any pollen, he said. Or maybe there were no allergies, but there were pollen. (laughs) Yes. Somebody said, have you noticed the pollen this week, anybody? Just look at your car, if not your runny nose, right? Yes, exactly right. Any any other thoughts? I like that thought. That's good. No allergies. I think that'll be a nice thing in, in the new earth. Peaceful. Most beautiful. Well, this is out of a book called Lift Him Up. This is a commentary. Listen to the ideas and see if we can't help give some flavor to our imagination. It says, The earth came from the hand of the Creator, exceedingly beautiful. There were mountains and hills and plains, and interspersed among them were rivers and bodies of water. The earth was not one extensive plain, but the monotony of the scenery was broken by hills and mountains, not high and ragged as they are now, but regular and beautiful in shape. Now listen to this sentence. The bare, high rocks were never seen upon them but lay beneath the surface, answering as bones to the earth. See, the, the rock, you understand what she's saying? As we looked at our mountains, like the Rockies and the Himalayas, and these the sharp rocket edge, even out here at Lookout Mountain, and you see those rocks sticking out, those big boulders, that was never seen in the earth as God made it. Those were the bones, and to see that would be like seeing somebody's bones sticking out of their leg today. A skeletal bone, yeah. So imagine if we walked, somebody saw a bone sticking out of their leg, and they go, man, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> We wouldn't do that, would we? No, but see, see how darkened our vision is that we can actually look around the world and see these, these ragged and sharp peaks and go, wow, how beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful. The waters were regularly dispersed. The hills, mountains and were very beautiful. Uh, the plains were adorned with plants and flowers and tall, majestic trees of every description, which many were many times larger and more beautiful than the trees are now. The air was pure and healthful, and the earth seemed like a noble palace. The earth like a noble palace. Mm. Any thoughts about that? Have you seen homes recently built in which they are including gardens and stuff inside the home? Or homes that, that have a center opening that actually, in the side, side of the home, you can actually walk out into the sunshine in the center of the home. Have you seen that? Yes, yeah, a, a palace. This is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45. As man came forth from the hand of his creator, he was lo- in lofty in stature. In perfect symmetry, his countenance bore the ruddy tint of health and glowed with the light of life and joy. Adam's height was much greater than that of men who now inhabit the earth. Much greater than men who inhabit the earth today. Eve was somewhat less in stature, yet her form was noble and full of beauty. Now get this. Hmm. The sinless pair wore no artificial garments. They were clothed with a covering of light and glory, such as the angels wear. So long as they lived in obedience to God, this robe of light continued to enshroud them. Hmm. Keep that in mind, robes of light and glory. Would you like a robe of light and glory? 
No washing. So what was the earth like before the before sin? No laundry. Nice. I like it. Yeah. Yes. How many of us get uh, tired of the weekly laundry? Or the bi-weekly laundry, depending on how big your family is. Uh, this is uh, continuing on in the same book. It says, on this is on page 50, While they remained true to God, Adam and his companion were to bear rule over the earth. Remember, they were given dominion. Dominion over the earth. Unlimited control was given them over every living thing. Unlimited control. Have you considered that possibility? What would that look like? Unlimited control over all living things on planet earth. Now remember, not over each other, but all the other living things. What would that have looked like, you think? It goes on, it says, The lion and lamb sported peacefully around them, were laid down together at their feet. The happy birds flitted about without fear, and their glad songs ascended to praise of their creator. Adam and Eve united with them in thanksgiving to the Father and the Son. How many like visiting a zoo? You like the zoo? How would you like to go in? You ever see the cute little bears and maybe, maybe a mom with some cubs? A lion, a lioness with her, her cubs or a tiger with her cubs. How, how, how often would you like to go in and just pet them? <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? Didn't your heart say you like that? But we don't because... Yes, why are, the, why are the animals attacking us? Was it that way in Eden? No. What did Eden look like with the animals? Did they have hawks eating other birds in Eden? <laughs> Lions chasing down the caribou? Do we have that in Eden? No. Can you get your mind around what Eden was like? It's hard for us to imagine. Where our minds are so conditioned to this survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog, kill-or-be-killed mindset of the world. Remember, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. How about this? Page, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 90. In the days of Noah, a double curse rested upon the earth in consequence of Adam's transgression and of the murder committed by Cain. Yet this had not greatly changed the face of nature. There were evident tokens of decay, but the earth was still rich and beautiful in gifts of God's providence. The hills were crowned with majestic trees supporting the fruit-laden branches of the vine. The vast garden-like plains were clothed with verdure and sweet with the fragrance of thousand flowers. The fruits of the earth were in great variety and almost without limit. The trees far surpassed in size, beauty, and perfect proportion any now to be found. Bigger than our redwoods. But get this, this is where it gets really cool. Their wood was of fine grain and a hard substance closely resembling stone. And hardly less enduring. Gold, silver, and precious stones existed in abundance. What's the earth look like prior to, prior to sin? No sin is on the earth at this description, but prior to the flood. Prior to sin, prior to the flood, what, what did it look like? What kind of wood is she describing? Is it possible that what we call petrified wood was pre-flood trees? Hard, stone-like, hardly less enduring. Possible. Why did it take 120 years to build an ark? <laughs> yeah, they couldn't drive a nail through that stone, right? Yeah, it was hard and less enduring. The tools that they had to use. Yeah. What do you think about this gold, silver, and precious stones existed in abundance? Let's use our imagination now. With these, these paragraphs kind of enlightening our mind, what might the earth have looked like? Was it a dark place? Or was it brilliant? What kind of clothes were they wearing? Clothes of light. This is fascinating, isn't it? Um, jagged peaks? Rough edges? Grand Canyons? 
No Grand Canyons. De- uh, the, the fall color cruise. Any fall color cruises? No fall color cruises. Why no fall color cruises? No fall. Nothing was dying. Do you have to worry about uh, going out and getting firewood? No, no. no. Doesn't ha- How about roadkill? Any roadkill? <laughs> no, we laugh, but you see how much, of the, how much death is around us all the time. And we take it for granted. We don't even really notice that much. It's just everywhere all the time. How about thorns and thistles and the plants? Did God make roses with thorns? Did he? Were there thistles? No. How about marijuana plants? <laughs> Keep that in mind. But the, but the gold and silver and precious stones in abundance, how do you envision this? Do you think that at the, as, as you looked out at the rivers flowing, could there be, instead of a mud bottom, that they had platinum and diamond bottoms or ruby and emeralds and sapphires uh, uh, adorning the bottoms of riverbeds and lakes and and a waterfall as the water came over with a background of platinum and and sapphires. Could you imagine how brilliant and beautiful it must have been? Possible? Well, what's what's the New Jerusalem built out of? Streets of? Gates of? Foundations of? Do you think that God might have used these things to make his earth gorgeous? And they were in abundance everywhere. But the flood buried them. Broke them up. Buried them. I think as you use your imagination, it's it's phenomenal to think about how beautiful that would be. What about the robes of light? Do you think the light emanating from their robes were just bright light? Or do you think that the light emanating from the individual person radiating off like like the, the light from the sun would change in hues and intensity based on their emotion and mood like our facial expressions change? What do you think? Would that be cool? Is it possible? Hmm. And what about the control, the absolute control over nature that was described? Total control. Think you're telepathically moving things? Moving rocks here to there? Just calling you? Hey, there's a hawk. Come down here. Hawk, come right to you. Without any question. You want that animal to come over? You just think it, it comes. How do you like that? Pretty cool. I think it's all very, very likely. So what happened after sin? What happened? In the context, before we even go into sin, what was the purpose of the creation of earth? What is being revealed in, in nature and in Adam and Eve's role? What was Adam and Eve's role in earth? Reveal the government and character of God. Yes, Adam and Eve were created in whose image? And given two divine powers. What were the two divine powers given Adam and Eve? Dominion and creation. The power to create beings in their image and dominion to govern. So they have a dominion to govern and they have the ability to create. Two godly things, and the First Corinthians four nine tells us that the that the the world of the earth is a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. They're watching what's going on here because there's a controversy about whether God can be trusted, and so God, instead of just giving a declaration or a claim, creates a new creation, revealing in microcosm what how God's government runs, and what would the universe learn from Adam and Eve if Adam and Eve stays loyal, if they don't uh, sin. What, what would it look like on planet Earth? When they have children, how would they as parents parent their children on planet Earth? In a perfect world without sin. 
Would there be abuse? No. Exploitation? No. Domination? No. Would they demand worship and slavery from their children? No. Or would they give of themselves constantly for the benefit of their kids? And the universe gets it. Oh, God didn't make us because He wants to enslave us and make us worship Him. He made us so that He has someone to pour Himself upon and give in love, to give of Himself for our good. And that results in our free will adoration and praise and love for Him as he, we recognize He is doing all for our good. This was a lesson. What happened after sin? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 57. Listen to this. After the transgression of Adam... Um, Adam at first imagined himself entering a higher state of existence, but soon the thought of his sin filled him with terror. The air, which had been of a mild and uniform temperature, seemed chill, chilly to chill the guilty pair. The love and peace which had been theirs was gone, and in its place they felt a sense of sin, a dread of the future, a nakedness of the soul. The robe of light which had enshrouded them now disappeared, and... To supply its place, they endeavored to fashion for themselves a covering, the leaves uh, of the plants, so that God would not see them naked. And then it says, In humility and unutterable, unutterable sadness, they bade farewell to the beautiful home and went forth to dwell upon the earth where rested the curse of sin. The atmosphere, once so mild and uniform in temperature, was now subject to marked changes. And the Lord merciful provided them garments of skin as a protection to the extremes of heat and cold. What happened to the atmosphere? What happened to our environment was in? What happened to their robes of light? The, the environment became hostile. Why did their garments of light disappear? They were no longer in harmony with God. Absolutely true. Why did that result in the loss of their garments? Where did the light emitting the garments originate? From where? From what source? With God. The angels that come, if you read in Scripture, they're always radiating light. Where's the source of that light? When Moses came down off the mountain, what was his face doing? And in fact, I have in the notes Exodus 34, and it talks about he came down, it says, quote from the Scriptures, Exodus 34, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And when Aaron and all of Israel saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Did Moses have third-degree burns? No. No, this wasn't a flammable fire. This wasn't a flammable fire. Where did, the, where did this light come from that Moses was radiating? Being in the presence of God. Being in the presence of God. God's glory. God's glory. And what was that? His character. His character. Why did the children of Israel, um, it says in the scripture, they were afraid to come near Moses. Was Moses their enemy? Was he angry at them? Was he trying to hurt them? Remember, Moses is the one who said, Lord, take my name out of the book. Why were they afraid to come near Moses? Was Moses after them? They knew they were sinful. So what did that have to do with them being afraid when they saw his face on fire? Is this fire that Moses had on his face similar to what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden? When... Might we wear such a robe of light? Have you ever thought you will get to wear such a robe? When? The resurrection. At the resurrection? How about before? Amen. Yes. What about Stephen? When Stephen was being stoned in the book of Acts, what did it say about his face? His face radiated like an angel. What do you think that was talking about? 
Can you have this type of light radiating from you today? It's possible. Moses had it. wasn't the resurrection, was it? Stephen had it. Why don't we have it now? Where's the source? Listen to this quote. This is out of a book called Early Writings, page 34. In the time of trouble... We all fled the cities and villages, but were pursued by the wicked who entered houses of the saints with a sword. They raised the sword to kill us, but it broke and fell as powerless as straw. Then we all cried day and night for deliverance, and the cry came up before God. The sun came up, and the moon stood still. Now, remember, we're talking about environment today. Listen to what the environment's going to look like one day in the future. The stream ceased to flow. Dark, heavy clouds came and clashed against each other. But there was one clear place of settled glory. Whence came the voice of God like many waters which shook the heavens and the earth. The sky opened and shut. With a, with a commotion. The mountains shook like a reed and the wind cast out ragged rocks all around. The sea boiled like a pot and cast out stones upon the land. I mean, this would be freaky, won't it? Mountains shaking, rocks flying out of the air, sea boiling like a pot, rocks coming up, the uh, skies unfolding. All This is going to be a freaky time, isn't it? You ever been in a really bad, bad thunderstorm that, that, that produces tornadoes? You ever been in one of those storms, anybody? Come on. Do you feel it? Do you feel the, the, the negative energy in the air? Does it give you a, an ominous feel? Yeah, you get that. I've been in storms like that. It's creepy. It's a creepy feel. What do you think it'll be like in this storm? Creepy. Yeah. The sea boiled. And God spoke the day and the hour of Jesus' coming. Spoke the day and the hour of Jesus' coming. Well, we know the day and the hour is coming. God spoke the day and the hour of Jesus' coming. That's what it says. And delivered the everlasting covenant to his people. He spoke one sentence and paused and while it rolled through the earth. And then it says, um, as we were praising glory and hallelujah, their countenances were lighted up with the glory of God and they shone with the glory as did the face of Moses when he came from Sinai. The wicked could not look upon them for the glory. Are we going to radiate fire like that again? Are we going to have robes of light? When? When? When will our faces radiate that glory? When we want it. When we want it, he says. You notice what it said, uh, the, the qualifying statement up there? God delivered the everlasting covenant to his people. And then the face is radiated. What is the everlasting covenant? Hebrews chapter 8, she's quoting. Hebrews 8. And this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, says the Lord. I will write my law on your heart and mind. No longer will a man say to his brother, know the Lord, for all will know me. And when we come back to that unity where the law of God... What is the law of God? The law of love, the design template for the life, the beneficence, other-centeredness. When we have that perfectly reproduced in us, we will be back in union with God. And guess what? We radiate His character. We, our faces will glow. We will be on fire. Ever heard that saying? Well, it's on fire for the Lord. We will be on fire. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that day. So what happened to Adam and Eve's dominion? We talked about the robe of light. Oh, why did the robe of light go away? Because they broke trust with God. They broke trust. And so what did God do? What would have happened if Christ would have come to earth 2,000 years ago in the full glory that he shared with the Father before his incarnation? What would have happened to mankind? Why would they have been destroyed? Was he mad? Was he angry? Was he wrathful? Is there something incompatible? When, when God said to Moses, no one can see my face and live, well, what did he mean? Sin is combustible in the presence of God. Oh, oh, sin is combustible in the presence of God. Our God is a 
consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. And so as we think about the robe of light then in the Eden, as soon as they sinned, God veiled himself to protect them because he loved them. And it says in Hebrews 3.25, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did not let them reap the full consequences of what sin would do. And this universe was taken outside of the rest of, I mean, excuse me, this earth was taken outside the rest of the universe. We are not in harmony with the rest of the universe anymore. This, this world right now is artificial. This is not how life looks in the rest of the universe. We are, we are shielded, if you will, from the rest of the universe. Occasionally, we get little glimpses of it when an angel appears. An angel appeared as they were trying to arrest Christ. And the dazzling glory was so bright and they all fell as dead men. An angel appeared to the prophets. Uh, undone, undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, Isaiah. Can't tolerate the light in our condition. God has veiled us. This is not normal life in the universe. This is an artificial environment, kind of like a patient in an ICU on a ventilator. That's not normal. Normal, we don't need a ventilator. We, don't, we, we are in an artificial world, given an opportunity for God to heal us, restore us back to harmony with Him so we can live in that universe again. That's what's happening on earth right now. I think Adam and Eve, when they hid, uh, and when, just like you said, God hid Himself from them for their good, they misunderstood that, and we've been misunderstanding God ever since. Yes, and Satan has twisted our minds to think, the place you don't want to go, and the place you don't want to be, is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire. And that place is God's very presence. Uh, Isaiah, excuse me, Daniel chapter 7. God, ancient of days, takes his throne. Rivers of fire come out before him. And 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands stand in the fire. The fire of God's presence is not harmful. What is harmful is unremedied sin in our lives. That's what's harmful. And Satan has us running from our only cure, our only source of life. Don't get near the fire. Stay away from the fire. Don't go there. In reality, that's the only thing that will cure us and heal us. And we need restoration so we will live forever in the fire. So if somebody tells you you're going to hell, you say, praise God. (laughs) Praise God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Malachi 3.3 talks about um, refining gold and silver so that we can be to the Lord offerings and righteousness. Exactly. In In the fire, right? Yeah, exactly. I love it. Good. Alrighty. So what happened to Adam and Eve's dominion and rule over nature after sin? What happened in their authority over the animals? We just talked about everything was peace, everything was harmony. But what happened after sin? Did the animals continue to be subject to their rule? No. How about harmony with each other? Was there discord? And, and, and now it's the whole survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog world. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 59. Under the curse of sin, all nature was to witness to man of the character and results of rebellion against God. What does that mean? Was to witness to man. Cause and effect. Yes. See, all nature, as you look around, shows us what happens when we are not in harmony with the law of love. And what happens? Pain, suffering, and death. It's all around us. We have to be blind not to see it. Why does it happen? Because God inflicts upon those who violate his law an external penalty of suffering and pain, or because when you're outside the law of love, the law of self-seeking, the law of survival of the fittest, is kill or be killed, and it results in war, combat, suffering, and death. Yes? I think we can see that in so many things. And I think particularly of dogs. People always talk about dogs are bred this way. They're, they're trained this way. And I think from the moment man became selfish... 
we started having an effect on nature that made nature become fearful and protective of itself. I don't think it happened overnight, all of a sudden everything just started colliding and killing each other, but our nature of sinfulness and selfishness so overshadowed, our dominion became so perverted and so selfish and so self-satisfied, we had that effect, and the animal kingdom had reacted in a way to protect itself almost. Continuing on with the next sentence. When God made man, he made him rule over the earth and all living creatures. So long as Adam remained loyal to heaven, all nature was in subjection, subjection to him. But when he rebelled against the divine law, which law? Law of, law of love, the principle, the design template for life. The inferior creatures were in rebellion against his rule. What was, what was the lesson? You see, the same lesson we are learning. This is the microcosm. Thus the Lord, in his great mercy, would show men the sacredness of his law and lead them by their own experience to see the danger of setting it aside, even in the slightest degree. In other words, the cause and effect thing. We set it aside, pain, suffering happens. We touch a hot stove, boom, we hurt. We don't brush our teeth, our teeth decay. The pain leads us to realize, wait, something's wrong from stepping outside of the principles of health. Well, you have to wonder also if some of that stuff was removed not only for our own good. I mean, on the resumption, which I agree that we had telepathy, we had telekinesis, we had control and communication with the plants and the animal world. If we were to, in our evil state, to harness that man fighting man for whatever, we would come up with our own destruction a lot faster than we already are. I like it. I like it. And see if that thought doesn't bear some fruit here in the next little bit of our lesson. I think you're right on track. This is what happened to the plant life. We talked about the animal life in rebellion. What about plant life? Listen to this. This is out of uh, Selected Messages, second volume, page 288. It says, Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. The seeds of death did not come from Christ. Satan planted these seeds when he tempted Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge, which meant disobedience to God. Not one noxious plant was placed in the Lord's great garden. Does that rule out marijuana? <laughs> okay. But after, <laughs> but after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. They sprang up after sin, poisonous herbs. Nothing poison. No poison ivy in heaven. Aren't you glad for that? Yes. Have you ever had poison ivy, anybody? Won't you be glad to know that you won't have that problem in heaven? No poisonous herbs. In the parable of the sower, the question was asked the master, Did thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence, did, whence have the tares come? The master said, An enemy has done this. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his sowing, and by his ingenious methods of amalgamation, he has corrupted the earth with tares. Oh, So who, who had dominion on earth g- given by God? Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, did someone else get dominion on earth? Who's called the prince of the world now? Satan is the prince of the world. Does he have power to influence and affect nature? Any evidences from scripture you can cite? Job. Somebody said it. Excellent. First, in the first chapter book of Job, God puts Job into Satan's hands. He just can't kill him. And what does Job do? What does Satan do? He brings a storm to destroy the home, to destroy the kids. Remember? If he's bringing a storm to do that, he's got control over nature, doesn't he? And my personal belief, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but I believe that when you read the story of Jesus out in the lake with the apostles and the tempest came, these were fishermen. They were used to storms. And this tempest was so bad that they had given up and were going to die. And Jesus stands up, peace be still. I believe that storm was brought by Satan to destroy Christ and the early church. Now, there's no inspiration for that, but it just makes sense to me, given what I read in Job and what Satan was trying to do to Christ all through, throughout. Shouldn't Christ, the attitude that Christ had about that storm, 
be our attitude in our storms. That just sleeping and like I don't care less what you do to me, Satan. Exactly. He didn't have to fear. Exactly. See, because Satan has nothing in him. You see, when we are created anew in heart and mind, Satan has no power over us anymore. So, what do you think about this phrase, this term, ingenious methods of amalgamation? I want to talk about that. Ingenious methods of amalgamation. What does it mean, amalgamation? Pardon? Interbreeding? Mutation. Mutation. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Well, this is out of a book called um, um, Spirit of Prophecy, first volume, page 68 and 69. And um, it's talking about the time right before the flood. He said, instead of doing, and I want you to think, because Jesus said, we're going to, I'm going to quote this passage, but as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Think that, keep that in mind as I, as I share this. Instead of doing justice to their neighbors, they carried out their own unlawful wishes. They had a plurality of wives, uh, which was contrary to God's wise arrangement. In the beginning, God gave Adam one wife, showing to all who should live upon the earth his order and law in that respect. The transgression and fall of Adam and Eve brought sin and wretchedness upon the human race, and man followed his own carnal desires and changed God's order. The more men multiplied wives to themselves, the more they increased in wickedness and unhappiness. Hmm. If anyone, if anyone chose to take the wife, <laughs> if anyone chose to take the wives or cattle or anything belonging to his neighbor, he did not regard justice or right. But if he could prevail by over his neighbor by reason of strength or by putting him to death, he did so and exulted in his deeds of violence. We have places in the world like this today. What would happen in the U.S. today if it wasn't for our police? What happened in New Orleans after Katrina? Chaos. Were they, were they, the exact same thing happening. Exactly. They love to destroy the lives of animals. They use them for food. And this increased their ferocity and violence and caused them to look upon the blood of human beings with astonishing indifference. But it, there was one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race by a flood. It was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. God purposed to destroy by a flood that powerful long-lived race that had corrupted their ways before him. He would not suffer them to live out their days in a natural life, which would have been hundreds of years. I think the point you were making, their abilities to cause so much devastation and problems. So, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Do we have problems like this in the earth today? Do we have problems with marrying many wives or husbands? Not simultaneously, but serially. <laughs> I had a patient in my office this week who told me that growing up his mother was married ten times. Ten husbands during his childhood. Yeah. Do you think that would cause some confusion to the child? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we have, we have that problem. Do we have problems of violence in society today? Not just U.S. society, worldwide. Do you know, have, have you read or heard anything going on in Africa, the Sudan, places like this? Remember Rwanda recently, a few years ago? Okay, terrible, terrible violence. They kill whole families. Kill whole families, mutilate and brutalize them. Cut off limbs and cut off heads and do all this horrible stuff. Boil them in oil, just to make an example. Terrible stuff going on. Violence all the time. Do we have cruelty to animals today? And do we produce animals for the purpose of slaughtering and to eat? 
And what was God's attitude, before I get into the data for today, what was God's attitude to the slaughter of animals? Well, it's a very interesting passage in the book of Jonah. Remember God sent Jonah to Nineveh to warn that city to repent. Great story. Great story. And Jonah, of course, was a bigot. Hated, hated the Ninevites. Wanted them to die. Didn't want to give them a message of repentance. God knew this. Uh, this is why God called Jonah. Because God knew Jonah was going to run away. God knew his heart. And, this is, and he ran into the sea. And Jonah, of course, in the storm, jumps overboard. God has a great fish to bring Jonah to Nineveh. Now, God, in his foreknowledge, is very wise. What was the god of the Ninevites? Dagon, the fish god. They worshipped the fish. Imagine you're an Ninevite out there on the shore fishing, and here comes a great fish, and whoop! Here comes Jonah out of the fish. Do you think you'd listen to what Jonah had to say? <laughs> Your God just coughed up the guy. He's a little white. He's a little white from three days in the fi- belly of the fish, you know, from the bleach. And so he tells him to repent. And notice, and Jonah's mad. He's really mad. And uh, so God causes a little a plant to rise up and shade him from the sun. And then he causes the plant to wither and die. And Jonah gets really mad at God. How can you cause this plant to where the worm comes and eats the stem of the plant and it dies and he's in the sun again? And then God says this to Jonah. It's very fascinating what God says to Jonah. Here he says, But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. What does that mean? Children. When they say can't tell their right from the left, it's talking about children who haven't learned left and right yet. So that's what that means. So there's 120,000 children in Nineveh. That's what it's saying. Um, 120,000 children. And get this last phrase. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Did you ever notice that? He didn't want to destroy the cattle. Isn't that fascinating? Is he using cattle as specific as in cows or is he talking cattle? Livestock? Livestock. Yeah. So, and then, and you say, wait a minute, what about all those sacrifices, right, in the Old Testament? Well, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Here's the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. God did not like the slaughter of animals. We have to get that straight, because a lot of people think, because of the Old Testament sacrificial system, that God enjoyed the slaughter of animals. He did not. God is the giver of life. He's not... Why was the smell of burning sacrifice pleasing unto the Lord? Yeah, it, it, that's a metaphor. It wasn't literal. It was a metaphor. The smell of burning sacrifice metaphorically says what? What did the system metaphorically mean when the sacrifice was burning? Exactly. It means burning away of the evil in our hearts and transforming us by the fire of the Holy Spirit, burning away sinfulness and character traits so that we become pure in heart. It's a metaphor. He loves burning sin out of our hearts and restoring us to righteousness. That makes him happy. There's a metaphor. So, let's talk about the, the, the slaughter of animals. Do we have the problem today with that in our society? 2006 report by Livestock Environment and Development Initiative, the livestock industry is one of the largest contributors of environmental degradation worldwide. And modern practices of raising animals for food contribute to massive scale air and water pollution, land degradation, climate change, and loss of biodiversity. The livestock sector emerges as one of the top two or three most significant contributors to the most serious environmental problems on every scale from local to global. Let's get some specifics. 2009... Two World Bank scientists estimated that meat industry contributes to 51% of all emissions of greenhouse gases. 
Over half of the worldwide emissions of greenhouse gases come from the meat industry. Do we actually talk about that when we're talking about all this global warming stuff? Do you notice how they leave that out? This 2006 study in the University of Chicago concluded that a person switching from a typical American diet to a vegan diet with the same number of calories would prevent the emissions of 1,485 kilograms of carbon dioxide per year. The difference exceeds that of an individual switching from a Toyota Camry to a Toyota hybrid Prius. So you can actually get more out of switching your diet than you can switching your vehicle. <laughs> Animals raised for food produce 130 times as much excrement as the entire U.S. population. Roughly 89,000 pounds per second. All without the benefit of waste treatment systems. According to the Union of Concerned Scientists, animals on factory farms in America produce 20 tons of fecal matter every year for every U.S. household. A pig farm with 5,000 animals produces as much fecal waste as a city of 50,000 people. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, the runoff from factory farms pollutes our waterways more than any other industrial source combined, all other industrial sources combined. They talk about all the, you know, the, 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 the various DuPonts and chemical plants and all this kind of stuff. All those combined are not as much as the, as the meat industry. Factory farms also produce massive amounts of dust and other contaminants that pollute the air. A study in Texas found that animal feedlots in the state produce more than 14 million pounds of particulate dust every year and that the dust contains biologically active organisms such as bacteria, mold, and fungi from the feces of the feed. So this is going up in the air. Um, massive amounts of excrement produced by the farms emit toxic gases such as hydrogen sulfide and ammonia into the air, and the EPA reports that roughly 80% of ammonia emissions in the United States come from animal waste. When the cesspools holding tons of animal urine and feces get full, factory farms will frequently get around water pollution limits by spraying liquid manure into the air, creating mists that are carried away by the wind. People who live nearby are forced to inhale the toxins and pathogens from the sprayed manure. Yeah, how's that sound? You ever get that bad smell going down the interstate somewhere? Yeah, put your car filter on. The EPA reports that chicken, hog, and cattle excrement have polluted 35,000 miles of rivers in 22 states and contaminated groundwater in 17 states. What about the use of fresh water? Do we waste fresh water raising animals to slaughter? One cubic meter of water is equal to 1,000 liters of water, which equals 264 gallons of water. In order to raise, and, and I'm going to give you some stats on what, how much water it takes to raise one ton of a particular crop. One ton. One ton of beef. To raise one ton of beef, you have to use 16,726 cubic meters of water. That adds up to 4.5 million gallons of water for one ton of beef. A cow weighs between 1,000 and 2,000 pounds. So we're talking between one and two cows, you will use four and a half million gallons of water to get one to two cows to slaughter. Fresh water, yeah. Potatoes, on the other hand, uh, instead of 16,000 cubic meters of water, to raise a ton of potatoes, it's 133 cubic meters of water. Uh, to raise a ton of wheat, uh, wheat it's 1,400 instead of 16,000, 1,400. Uh, a ton of corn, 1,000. 1,000 cubic meters instead of 16,000 cubic meters. And there's more stats in the, in, the, in the notes. Are we acting toward animals today like they did during the flood, prior to the flood? Are we? Yeah. And consider the law of love. 
This is a lesson book. Remember, it's a lesson book. God allowed, we just read, God allowed these things to happen as a lesson to man that we might learn. And so when we violate the law of love, the law of love is the principle of giving, the principle of sacrificing self to the benefit of others, protecting those, those less fortunate, even uh, guarding the environment in the lower life forms. When we instead exploit and take for ourselves, violate the law of love, what, what is the consequence? What's the result? Death. And what are we seeing to our environment because of this way of life? We're destroying our environment. Are we learning a lesson? Only harmony with God's law of love is their life. And so violating the law of love results in death. The wages of sin is death, it says. What about amalgamations? Research at the University of Nevada is ongoing into growing sheep with human organs. They inject sheep embryos with human stem cells in order to grow and harvest human organs for transplantation. That's what they're doing right now. They're researching it. In China in 2003, at the Shanghai Second Medical University, they fused human cells with rabbit eggs. And they made human-rabbit hybrids. Embryos that were growing. And they killed the human-rabbit embryos at a certain stage of the embryologic development in order to study the, uh, the cells. In Minnesota in 2004, researchers at the Mayo Clinic created pigs with human blood flowing through their bodies. And they are alive today. Pigs with human blood flowing through their bodies. At Stanford, they have created mice with brains that contain, currently contain 1% human neurons in the brains of the mice. And they're currently working to create mice with the, with the mouse brain that has 100% human neurons in the mouse brain. This is done by injecting embryonic mice brains with human neurons. And then they grow human neurons instead of mouse neurons. The scary thing is to think of it as before the flood, you were dealing with perfect minds and perfect people, or pretty close to perfect minds and perfect people, and you figure out what, what they were able to do during that time span, and you figure that most of what we know has happened since the, what, 1600s? He's talking about how much more advanced their mental processes were prior to the flood, how much more uh, intelligent they were, and how much longer they lived so they could develop their theories over time. They didn't lose their train of thought. They didn't forget things. They also didn't have you know, a person like Einstein dying and then his work not being carried on. They would carry this work on. And something else they had. Vitality of nature. Nature wasn't fragile like our nature is today. How many, how many babies end up in ICUs around the world today? Because there's not, there's not one report in, in an inspired record of an infant dying before the flood. Life was vibrant, and it was hardy. And, that, and because of that, they didn't have to do 123 experiments before they get their first clone sheep. Well, there's a lot of stuff we're not told about before the flood. But they were, life, life was hardy and vibrant, and it wasn't weak like our life. And so it lended itself easier to these types of amalgama- amalgamations. I personally believe this is where our dinosaurs come from. Dinosaurs in the fossil record are from the amalgamations that were going on prior to the flood. That's why God killed them all. Yes? A few weeks ago you were telling us about how ingesting uh, animals, and you were talking specifically about um, sea animals that are fluorescent. Actually, we find that that becomes genetically, uh, affects our DNA. Is, could we say that eating animals and animal products is... 
a form of amalgamation? You know, I think there's science to, to actually support that idea now. Because when you eat an animal product, you actually there's, there's evidence that shows that some of the genetic material of the animal will cross the mucosal membrane of the GI tract and actually in, embed itself into the cells of the, of the host that eats the animal and start exerting on some level um, genetic expression through the RNA ribosomes in the cells of, of the animal, host animal. That's been documented in uh, some studies now. So to the extent and how far that goes, and some are even arguing that, it, that, that uh, genetic material from the animal that you've eaten incorporates itself into the human DNA. And there's a lot of what, what they call a non-expressed human DNA that they are now uh, theorizing that actually has its origin in animal species rather than human species. Yeah, so that, that's, all, that's all for further research. Yes, Bonnie. They were so wicked, were they bright? I think um, I think wisdom and intelligence are two different things. And so they weren't wise, but they had scientific intelligence. But you're right, you point out a, a wonderful point. They weren't very wise at all. Yes. Um, <laughs> Nice one. Yes. Yeah. It gives a whole new meaning to the term frog in your throat, doesn't it? Yes. She points out that Christ ate fish when he was on earth. Yes. And that's certainly true. That's certainly true. So, as we think about all this, does it give us insight and does it give us any reasons beyond physical, personal health for a vegetarian lifestyle. So we have reasons beyond vegetarian uh, personal health. We, we tend to focus in our church, vegetarian lifestyle, so you can have a better physical health, which is true. No question about it. Science is black and white on that. You, you can't argue against a, a whole food vegan diet being healthier than an animal-based diet. It's just black and white. But is there, is there reasons beyond that now? Yeah. What other reasons are there for moving towards vegetarianism? He's saying contamination of food and everything around you. Yes, what else? Stewardship. Stewardship. We have a responsibility. As the, as, the, as the image of God is restored within us, are we not to become more and more like God in our entire life? We are to reveal God in the way we govern ourselves and live. The fruits of the Spirit, we, we gain self-governance. And do we see God exploiting His creatures for, for food? We see what it does to the environment. It's destroying the earth. Do we have a responsibility in stewardship to make decisions that promote life? To move ourselves in harmony with the law of love, the principles that the universe are designed to run upon? Or do we ignore all that? Are there reasons simply beyond? Does the law of love say, I have love? Well, let me ask you, for those of us, and i got to tell you, I was not raised vegetarian. I, I ate meat my, my childhood and all the way up until, uh, uh, I guess, 1992 is when I became a vegetarian. And... Um, there are places and times still where it may be appropriate in this world. It's, uh, it's better to, to eat meat than to starve to death. And there are places in the world that's all they have. Um, so I'm not uh, suggesting that it, it should never happen. Um, but if you have an op- op- opportunity to move away from that, uh, should you move in that direction? You've always told us that they loved life. I mean, they did not love themselves so much as to shrink from death. How would you apply that verse to what you just said? Yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, that there's a difference in fulfilling God's purpose for mankind than necessarily um, a chicken. I do think there is a difference there. 
I, I would respect someone's decision to give their life for a chicken. I think, that the, I think the difference between us and a chicken is less than the difference between Christ and us. That's and Christ gave his life for us. I think when she made her statement over here, she might have been, just her response, she might have been saying it in the form of a question. And that's something a lot of people say when we talk about the whole idea of diet. Well, Jesus ate fish. My response to that would, my response to that would be Jesus' main point to them right then at that moment in time in the little snippet that he had left of them in earth's history was not about their diet. That was an important issue, but Christ had, he was working on a priority list, and right then, if he would have made them scrambled tofu and whole grain pancakes for breakfast, they would have been so distracted, he wouldn't have been able to tell them the really important things that he had to tell them right there on the seashore. But 2,000 years later, we should be able to handle scrambled tofu and whole wheat pancakes and not be distracted. We should get it by now. I think, that, uh, I think that this is a great conversation, and I'm pointing out that there are reasons beyond, for those who want to move towards a vegetarian diet, there are reasons beyond just helping your own self be physically healthy. There are responsibility of stewardship. There's responsibility of loving, um, loving creation and not wanting to uh, you know, create factory farms. And if, they were at a re- if you were at a restaurant and next time you're about to order any type of meat, if they brought the living animal out before you, two of them, and asked you to pick the one you want them to go kill, would it be harder for you to do that? Would it be harder if you had to go out and back and, and, and actually kill it yourself before you ate it? Does it, does it, does it change the, the experience for you? Because it says in the Bible, they will not hurt nor destroy. Right. Anymore up here. And, there, and we won't have time to get to it, but I do want to share this text with you because I want to jump a little bit into the issue of the Sabbath. But um, it says in Revelation 11, 17, and 18 that when Christ comes back, it says, uh, it says we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is is and who was and and because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign the nations were angry and your wrath has come the time has come for judging the dead and rewarding your servants the prophets and your saints and those who revere revere your name both small and great and for destroying those who destroy the earth did you ever notice that destroying those who destroy the earth i'll just let you think about the potential implications of why those who destroy the earth will be destroyed why why would that be? Because God's mad at him? Because he's angry? He says, ah, you did that? Or is it because if you have a heart that will destroy life, if you have a heart that will exploit for yourself, if you have a heart that doesn't care to, to protect, then are you in harmony with God? No. No, you're not. Okay, Monday's lesson in the second paragraph, it says, talking about the Sabbath and the environment, it says, God himself in the role of creator, keeping the seventh-day Sabbath? Question, Mark. What do you think about this question of God keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath? How do you hear it? What does it mean? Is keeping the Sabbath different than God himself instituting the Sabbath? Do you hear keeping the Sabbath different than instituting the Sabbath? Yeah, no, I, I don't like this idea of God keeping the Sabbath in the sense of the way I hear it anyway. Is the Sabbath compulsory upon God? Is it a law that now he has to abide by? Sabbath was created for man. Sabbath was created for man, according to Jesus, created in the garden. Yes. But keeping something also means preserving it. Keeping it means preserving it. Mm-hmm. Keeping hmm. it implies that it was uh, it was something arbitrary that it was just mandated from on high instead of a revelation of this character. Remember the Sabbath day to 
keep it holy. How do we do that? You don't get in water above your knee on Sabbath. Wading is good. Swimming is no good. Is that it? Hey, Philip, I'm joking right now, okay? That's my nephew. He's 11. I want him to know I'm kidding. Yes. Time to discover and get to know the character of the God that created you and made you and made this world. So you come back to several weeks ago where your talk was on the character of love. I, go ahead. And that's it. When you come back to the love, then it's not the rule you're keeping, it's that relationship and, and that specialness. I like what you're saying. Let's flush it out even further. Is Do we keep the Sabbath by avoiding work? No, so let's let's go work. Yes. I've been asked about um, shouldn't you keep that relationship seven days a week? Why is Sabbath more important in terms of relationship? Excellent, excellent question. See, we got thinking going on in here. Good, good. So about the work question, Jesus said in John five sixteen and eighteen um, to those that were questioning him, because Jesus was doing these things. He was healing on the Sabbath. Uh, he just had a guy pick up his mat on the Sabbath and carry his mat. You remember the paralytic, okay? And uh, and they were criticizing him for doing this work on the Sabbath. And he says to them, "My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working." For this reason, the Jews tried even harder to kill him. Why? He was working on Sabbath. We shouldn't stop the works of God on Sabbath, should we? Should we stop loving? Should we stop helping? Should we stop ministering? Should we stop healing? Should we stop giving of ourselves on Sabbath? Oh, no. But any self-interest? Well, we should be stopping that all the time anyway, but particularly things that are designed just for our own gain. That's what we should put aside on Sabbath, right? What is it that makes the Sabbath holy? He said God sanctified it. What does that mean? I heard that my whole life. What does it mean? What does it mean? Set apart. This was set apart. Does that make it holy? It was set apart? God said it was holy. He sure did. Does, does something get holy because God say it, says it's holy? Or did God say it was holy because something about it made it holy? His presence makes it holy. That's what he says. In the Garden of Eden, how many days a week did God come to talk to them in the cool of the day? So then his presence was in every day. So it was every day holy. If it's his presence that makes it holy, it was every day holy since he came and spoke to them every day. Oh, but it, but wait then. It's not it's something more than his presence? What? If justification is the work of a moment, Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Maybe our understanding of that sanctification of the sanctified Sabbath, maybe that is a growing process in the way in which we understand it. Because it certainly wasn't, wouldn't have been talked about in this church 50 years ago the way we're talking now, and I think it's grown. Yeah. It, it reveals his character, just like marriage was sanctified. Marriage was intended to reveal his character. Oh, okay. Now we're getting somewhere. What was happening in the universe? We've got two minutes, so I'm going to wind this up. What was happening in the universe at the time of the creation of planet Earth? War of a physical nature? We don't wage wars. The world does. Our weapons aren't worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and pretensions that set itself up against the knowledge of God. It's a war in the mind. War in the mind over... The knowledge of God. That's the war. Who started the war? Amongst what kind of beings? Angels. So there's war in heaven. 
God says, instead of just simply, which he did declare his innocence and the truth, he began to give evidence. And he, on day seven, after the creation of planet Earth, after this immense display of power and might, while Satan's lies are warping its way through the minds of some of the angels, and they're going, wow, what a display of power. Maybe God is just a power monger trying to flex his muscles to intimidate us, to get us to step in line. After he creates planet Earth, God says, universe, you've heard all that I've said. Take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. Weigh it out for yourself. Think it through. Come to your own conclusions. What does it say about God that in the context of an assault on his right to rule, that rather than using his power to force people in line, he creates a window, a day, 24 hours a week, which says, I won't use my power to force you in line. You're free to think for yourself. And the reason Satan hates the Sabbath is every seven days the Sabbath screams. Satan lied. Satan lied. You understand, if God was the kind of being that Satan says he is, there would be no Sabbath. Its very existence is proof and evidence that with God we have freedom. And God is love because love requires freedom. And so what makes the Sabbath holy? It's invested with the very attributes of God's character. He presented the truth about himself through creation week, finishing his work, in love, God is love, truth, love, and left his created beings free. And Sabbath observance is more than which day of the week you take off from work. It's having the law written on the heart and mind so that you are a person who practices presenting truth and love and leaving people free. I will write my law in your hearts and minds. This is what Sabbath looks like. Because those who put Christ on the cross wanted him down by sunset so they could go home and observe the Sabbath of the God they just killed. They were not true Sabbath observers. Were they? No. You can observe the day behaviorally without having the heart regenerated. And so real Sabbath observance is understanding the holiness of God's character. Having a value and a love for truth. A love for others. And freedom of respect for the conscience of other people. You practice that. And then every week you remember and you realize, wow, this day wouldn't exist except God is the God that Jesus revealed him to be. And we rejoice in this freedom that we have each week in Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us evidence, evidence of your goodness and love, and that you don't use your immense power to coerce your creatures and threaten us, but you have left us free. We humble ourselves before you now, open our hearts, ask for your spirit to take all that Christ has achieved, write that new covenant law on our hearts and minds that we can die to self and begin giving of ourselves to uplift those around us and protect those around us. That our community here in Collegedale can become that community of the early church where we love each other as you have loved us. Caring for each other, uplifting each other, and the world will see the light shining from here as a beacon. And it will spread out. And our faces will soon one day radiate as Moses' face radiated. And we will be wearing those robes of light. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.